If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I didn't know this when I got up today, but today is my 25th anniversary working at for the Plain Dealer and in Cleveland. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and the Plain Dealer. I am Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Laura Johnston, Layla Tassi, and Jane Cahoon on this Friday morning. Happy Friday, everybody. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. Happy Friday and happy anniversary. Yeah. yeah. Congratulations. Yeah, I learned it was my anniversary when our president, Brad Harmon, called me first thing to say, hey, I want to wish you a happy anniversary. <laughs> wow. Quarter century. I feel like I uh, am a native. And do you, yeah, you become a true Clevelander. Yeah. Well, it's cool. I, you know, we chose to live here. A lot of people, they're born here and they felt stuck, but we are East Coasters who decided we like Ohio and we wanted to live here. Did you pick out the gold watch? <laughs> no, I haven't. <laughs> All right, let's get going. What are the election law changes that Republicans plan, even though they all hailed Ohio's November election as safe, fair, and darn near perfect? Jane Cahoon, these changes actually aren't that dramatic, and some of them will make things better. Well, yes, but I think if you look at this objectively, you'll see that while there is some expansion of voting access, there are also rollbacks compared to what voters have been used to, at least for the past year. Uh, the overall goal here is to put into law a bunch of things that were kind of a patchwork of directives or court orders so that we have some certainty about what the what the rules are. But uh, let, let's start with the drop boxes, okay, because that's a controversial issue. They're going to be limited to one site per county as they were last year, but they're only going to be available for 10 days instead of 30 days before the election as they were last year. And I think as they are going to be for the upcoming primary. Um, now, I should mention that Representative Bill Seitz, the Republican leader who's sponsoring this bill, was was adamant with our Andrew Tobias that the this Dropbox provision was actually an expansion of access because they technically don't exist specifically in state law and they they only existed last year under the coronavirus emergency. Well, that's not exactly accurate. I mean, a number of courts have ruled that there's nothing in state law preventing multiple drop boxes per county. It's just that our elections officials, well, namely Frank LaRose, our secretary of state, chose to limit them to just one per county. Anyway, so that I think has people, you know, uh, a little riled up about. Yeah, but let, me, and, let me stop you before you go on there. I, the, the issue last year was the pandemic, the, that nobody wanted to go into a building. And we thought there should be a lot more ease of voting with drop boxes. But that was the pandemic going forward. It's not that hard to to park and drop your ballot off in a board of elections office. I'm not sure that this is the, the crushing blow that critics are making it sound like. Last last year, it was. Last year, it made it much more well, onerous. Well, the U.S. mail is still not that reliable. And, um, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, 10 days is really limited, I think. Why not just have them there during all of early voting? 
Well, they do worry about the security of them and having somebody watching them. Talk about some of the other things. There were some things that are actually really good here that people have pushed for for years, but this legislature would not do. And if they do this, it's going to make it better. Are you talking about allowing people to actually apply online for absentee ballots? That, that's one. And the other is that every time you go to a driver's license office, it re-ups your registration well, so you won't get purged. Yes, but I believe you still have to opt in on that. So while they're calling it like automated voter registration, it's you still have to opt in like, hey, do you want to be an organ donor? I, um, so it's not like... You know, in some states where you turn 18 and you're automatically registered to vote, it's it's not quite, it's not near that. But uh, the, the other thing about the absentee ballot applications, it does give you this alternative to the paper forms. You know, it brings us into this century. Uh, but when you do this, you're going to have to have two forms of ID, both a driver's license uh, or state ID number or state ID, and then the last four digits of your social security number. But that's identical to what you have to do to register to vote online. So, um, yes, that's, that's uh, you know, on that <laughs> yeah. side. Now, we're praising I, something that should have just been so automatic. I know, that, I know. Hey, you can go online <laughs> and ask for a ballot. Whoa, how radical can we be in Ohio? I mean, the <laughs> fact that you, yeah, you, you have to like print <laughs> the thing off and then, you know, ugh, such a hassle. But but uh, along those lines, this bill would also move the deadline a lot earlier to apply for an absentee ballot, like 10 days before the election. Right now, you have like until noon on the Saturday before the election. Now, this did create a lot of problems with the U.S. mail not being able to accommodate that quick turnaround of, you know, with the board getting people their ballots and then them returning them in time for the election. But um, 10 days before the election is, you know, that's a long time. I, you know, it might prevent some people, you know, the time might get away from them and they might not, uh, you know, they might miss their opportunity to, to apply. I guess it's sad that I'm going to say what I'm about to say, but I'm grateful that it's not worse. You know, you look at what Georgia did and you look at what other states have done that are, that are heavily controlled by Republicans they could have made things much, much worse because their colleagues across the country have. We would have been all over them because they had said we ran a great election. If you ran a great election, why do you have to change anything? But I am glad that they'll finally be online absentee ballot applications and the option of, of re-upping your registration when you get your license or get your plates or whatever you do. Yeah, I, I you probably think this is a little bit better than I do. But anyway. Well, you're just being That's negative sad. today, Jane. I'm, I'm, I'm the optimistic <laughs> one. The sun is shining. I'm going to look on the bright side. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What's up with how fast Cleveland and Columbus police released body camera footage on a couple of recent shootings? It seems like they get the footage to the public fast when they think it clears them. Although, Leila Tassi, I'm not so sure that the Columbus footage really clears them the way they think it does. <laughs> That's right. So, you know, our reporters have waited months, years even, for body camera footage related to police shootings and in at least one case from 2017, the footage has still never been released. So, yeah, you know, a 10-hour turnaround like what we saw in this case raises questions about their motives. So in Cleveland, in the footage in question, an officer fatally 
shoots 25-year-old Ines Lee Jr., who had drawn a gun and pointed at the officer. Lee had an outstanding warrant for murder and and one for aggravated robbery, and and police got a call that he was harassing someone. So a group of officers went to the scene, and Lee took off running, and then he tried to jump a fence, and when he failed at that, he pulled the gun on officers. Ten hours later, uh, CPD releases the video of this event. It's a total break from their normal way of doing business, which is sit on the video until they think no one cares anymore. <laughs> the the, uh, the NAACP and others view this break from protocol somewhat cynically, arguing that, well, you know, it, it appears CPD is willing to show the footage if it's clearly favorable to the officers involved. And they're calling for this kind of expedience in every case. And and so are we, really. I mean, you know, I mean, here's here's what I what I think about this. I mean, yes, absolutely. These are public records and it's it's completely unconscionable that the public and the media have waited years for some of these videos to tell us what really happened in these questionable police shootings that absolutely needs to change you know that said i think at this moment uh in history chief williams uh, is is watching the unrest unfold around cases of police violence against black citizens all over the country and realizing that that quickly escalates in the absence of information and obviously, oh, i'm throwing the flag here Layla. i'm not no way he's not getting credit for that not with the dea <laughs> well, shooting I, look I in never, the dea shooting ever. he came, he showed up and he he just they make up stuff i'm writing about this this weekend about oh yeah well changing the, yeah, the way we cover police and i'm not it, chief williams did a disservice to the community when mm-hmm. on the night the da agent shot somebody but keep going no i'm just saying you know in this in this particular case uh in in uh, involving this this guy with the gun you know promptly releasing that video really put a lot of questions to rest surrounding the case and and, you know, I just think that's uh, that's how but, it should always be. But they only did it because it cleared them. I mean, yeah, you watch that video and go, OK, well, like I didn't aim a gun at police. It's all the times they don't release the video. Yeah, think, I know. I know. You know be transparent <laughs> all the time. Don't yes. just, it's like, you know, you can. I what they prove that. here is they can do it. They should do it. That's true. They, they, well, well yeah. this, this is Laura Johnston. Doesn't that add up that? If they don't release it, it's bad. And now they're like training people if they don't release it, that this is something that we should all be really uh, wary of and upset about. We certainly will point that out in the future with the with the shooting where they where they thought the video cleared them. They provided it within six hours. But this one they're holding back for a week. Hmm. We wonder why. We'll have to see. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Why won't Sherrod Brown have his banking committee consider a bill to let marijuana companies use banks? Larry Johnston, we have such a cockeyed system here that states have legalized marijuana, but it's still illegal federally. And so marijuana companies, because it's illegal federally, cannot use federally regulated U.S. banks. And now Sherrod Brown's not in any hurry to help him out. Yeah, this seems like kind of a no brainer, like 47 percent or sorry, 47 states, which is 97.7 percent of the U.S. population live in an area where some form of marijuana is legal. So it's legal to have these businesses, but they're doing business in cash because they can't use the banks. So the House has passed a version of this legislation, but Brown is not in a hurry because he says that this committee that he chairs has been too much about Wall Street, not enough about housing and people's everyday economic lives. So he'll take a look at it, but he's in no hurry. But this bill that the House passed would block federal bank regulators from penalizing the banks that serve the businesses in the states where it's allowed. Can't you do 
two things at once. I'm, I'm a little <laughs> bit thrown here. Oh, no, we have to pay attention to housing and things. Can't you do both? I mean, it is a full-time job, right? You are getting paid to do this. This is a problem. The marijuana companies have have robbery issues because they have such a hard time putting their money somewhere where it's safe. And they're legal in the States. It, it, this one just doesn't pass the sniff test. It sounds Could like I say something Jared here? Brown's just trying to look like I, I represent the everyman. And it's like, come on, man. Go ahead, Jane Coon. Yeah, I think earlier he said something about wanting to pair this with some sort of, you know, criminal justice reforms or, you know, the fight, you know, getting rid of this war on drugs and, and you know, reforming that system. But it sounds like maybe he's trying to get a little too much done with that and that they should just do this. Yeah, in the meantime, people are suffering, man. Right. He's in charge. He can fix it. Just it's, fix it. It's not even just a dispensary, right? Like we're not talking about the small number of business. It's anybody that does business with the dispensaries, which I thought this was fascinating. It's Sabrina Eaton story that we're talking about Ohio company Scott's Miracle Grow, which you think of like, oh, it's like a gardening thing, which it is, but they 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 sell to cannabis um, growers because of you grow marijuana, and so they have like this weird way of doing business where they sell products through specialty gardening supply retailers instead of plant touching cannabis businesses that would upset bankers. So I feel like this would you know, you know, simplify a lot of things, including for Ohio companies. He's on a high horse. He needs to get off it and do his job. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Is First Energy cooperating with investigators in the biggest bribery scheme in the history of Ohio to get out of being charged criminally? Jane Cahoon, a big development in the forever dragging on First Energy case. Yeah, you know, th this isn't the first time that there's been like one juicy little fact buried in one of First Energy's otherwise, you know, pretty dense regulatory filings. This one indicates that they are discussing cutting a deal with the Department of Justice to avoid possible criminal charges as part of this ongoing, as you said, massive House Bill 6 bribery uh, investigation. The, the company wrote in this, it was a first quarter financial filing with the SEC. They said that they have been discussing what's called a deferred prosecution agreement. And that's where a company can take certain actions, like, for example, paying a fine and cooperating with an investigation to avoid being criminally charged. They said in the filing that that since these talks are preliminary, quote, First Energy cannot currently predict the timing, the outcome or the impact of a possible resolution of this ongoing investigation. Now, that's basically all we know because First Energy isn't commenting beyond that, nor is the U.S. Attorney's Office that's handling the HB6 investigation. But we have seen some other examples of these deferred prosecution agreements. For instance, Commonwealth Edison Company in Illinois, uh, That's that utility entered into one of these agreements uh, last year to settle bribery uh, allegations, agreeing to pay a $200 million fine. And then um, simultaneously, the Department of Justice filed a criminal charge against them, but agreed to dismiss it after three years if the company fully cooperated. So um, so it's not uncommon for these things. But um, we should also note that First Energy has not been charged or officially accused of wrongdoing. Yeah, yet, they just but, provided the $60 million that was used. Right, it's pretty clear scheme. from the court 
filings that the feds say they provided the bribery yeah. money so, to get this nuclear bailout passed. So I, it seems like Chuck Jones, the former CEO, his future wardrobe just got a lot more orange, right? I mean, <laughs> if the company is cooperating, the CEO that they fired who was overseeing this whole thing probably is looking at some criminal charges down the road. It's a big development. Now, you said uh, yesterday there's an earnings call today where we hope we might get a little bit more information on this. Yeah, we're, we're on that. Who knows uh, what's going to be what's going to be said there, but we are on it. Okay. Can, I, can I jump in here? Wait, well, Tassi. I, this is kind of amazing to me that the feds would be willing to cut a deal with the corporation at the heart of this. I mean, to, it doesn't it suggest that the criminal act of elected officials accepting bribes is far, far worse than the criminal act of actually bribing them, that they would forego full prosecution against First Energy in exchange for their cooperation means that the real target here is obviously Householder and his team, right? And and well, I'm, I'm sorry. Except, I think we should. I think we should see some real accountability wait, wait, at First Energy wait, too. More than but, a fine. More than t- what's two hundred million dollars to a company? But you're like forgetting. That? But you're forgetting. They, there's a very real possibility that the people at First Energy who were involved in this will face criminal charges. It's the company that that would just pay fines and promise to to be good. But I Yeah, you I, can't put a company in jail unfortunately. So has, so has that been the case that in these other, you know, prior cases where they've cut deals and uh that they that there were actual executives who did go to prison when when the company paid a just a, just a fine and I mean, did that shake out or was it like everyone was well, absolved? Well, nobody in the in the complete fraud of the 2008 banking crisis went to prison. <laughs> but I, I mean, I, I do think it's going to be hard for the people who are running First Energy. I mean, somebody approved spending $60 million that was used for bribery. If the feds don't indict the person that did that, it would raise the very serious questions you're raising. You, you can't just charge the people that accept the money. There is no bribery right. without a source. And so, look, when the, when we had the county corruption case, a whole lot of people that were paying the money went to prison. So I, I would expect to see it. It's dragging on way too long. I mean, we have not had an official movement in this investigation in months and months and months. It's like, how hard is this? When when right. are they going to come through with additional cases? There's There were more people involved well, in this. Well, the former U.S. Invited. attorney pointed out recently that because of the pandemic, they've got lots of people lined up, you know, waiting for trials. So I'm sure it's kind of the same thing with this. Yeah, but. except this is the biggest <laughs> bribery scheme in the history of Ohio. It's kind of important that we get to the bottom of it. They ought to get off their butts and get the case moving. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What basic needs products can't be purchased using food stamps? Leila Tassi, you wrote a fascinating column about this that I did, did enlightened me. I didn't know some of the things you put in oh, there. So what did you, you what did you report? So, so benefits under the Federal Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, SNAP, which is better known as food stamps, they can't be used on personal hygiene, cleaning, or paper products. So that means toilet paper, feminine hygiene products, soap and shampoo and laundry detergent and diapers. And, you know, a- these are absolutely essential items that no one should have to live without. I mean... Imagine if your baby were down to her very last diaper. I have a one-year-old. I can't imagine the the anguish and the helplessness of that feeling. But, you know, perhaps people are listening to this and thinking, well, duh, you know, food stamps are for food. But consider that there are no federal or state programs at all that meet that very great need for these products. 
The need became even greater during the pandemic when more families were seeking food assistance from food banks and their distribution partners. And those nonprofits expect the need to spike again once all of the federal streams of the pandemic uh, aid eventually run dry. And um, the Greater Cleveland Food Bank in Providence House, which is a crisis shelter for children, told me that they have fielded so many requests for these personal items during the pandemic at Providence House. And this wasn't in the column, but they told me that more than 300 families have received over a thousand items they needed just in recent months. And the food bank relies heavily on sporadic donations to keep their partner food pantries stocked with with a lot of these items. So what's the solution? I mean, some some believe the answer is to kind of simply expand the list of items that one can uh, buy with food stamps. But it doesn't seem that simple. For one, food stamps are a provision of the federal farm bill, which isn't up for renewal until I think 2023. And secondly, the subsidy that food stamps provide is so inadequate even just to meet the nutritional needs of a person. Stretching it to pay for other necessary household items could really leave families with even greater food insecurity. And that's the fear of all of the anti-hunger food advocates. So John Corlett of the Center for Community Solutions suggested we instead aim to make that new enhanced child tax credit permanent. And that's the the tax credit that people will start receiving in July, it will boost income for families with kids and give them the autonomy to spend it as they see fit. And he estimates that, you know, as many as 10,000 kids could be lifted out of poverty on account of that. So that could really go a long way toward meeting this need, but it'll expire at the end of the year if, if uh, the federal government doesn't take action. So I plan to use future columns in exploring these solutions a little further. I know it's not a new problem, but it's a really dire one and it really deserves our attention. Um, and the moment seems right for this conversation with Washington prioritizing pandemic recovery and assisting people who are really suffering right now. So right. good stuff. Check it out in today's Plain Dealer or on Cleveland.com. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How might Ohio Governor Mike DeWine change the metric for when he will lift the remaining coronavirus restrictions? Lord Johnston, he announced his metric March 4th after he'd been dropping and dropping, thinking, I I believe, that he'd be able to lift all these things. And no sooner did he announce it that it started to rocket back up, although it's recently turned. He stood by it every time we asked him about it until Wednesday, where he gave a new possibility. Right. The possibility is that we could base it on vaccinations instead of um, the number of cases, because that goal of 50 cases per 100,000 population seems pretty far away when you're at 185.8, which was the most recent number yesterday. And that went down for the first time in, I believe, after four weeks of rising. So the idea is to get rid of all of these health orders, the mask mandates, the social distancing, keeping tables at restaurants and bars apart. And the idea is Kentucky has used a metric of vaccinations. The uh, governor there, Andy Bashir, said he will lift orders when 2.5 million of the state's 4.5 million residents get vaccinated. So DeWine on Wednesday said, we're looking at that, which was totally news to us because he said no the last couple of times. And but still, I mean, think about that. 2.5 million out of 4.5 million in Kentucky, that's more than half, obviously, we're at less than 30% of Ohioans totally vaccinated right now. 
Yeah, I know. The problem with doing the vaccination is I don't know if he can set it low enough. I mean, if he sets it at 60 percent, we'll never lift the coronavirus restrictions the way things are going. The demand for the vaccine has suddenly just dropped off a cliff across the nation and in Ohio. So so if he were being realistic about where we'd get, it might be a depressingly low number. You know, if he comes out and says, "Okay, it's going to be vaccinations. And when 53 percent of Ohio is vaccinated, we'll do it. You know, people say, really, Governor, that's where you think we're going to get that. You know, that that means we'll be wearing masks for the rest of our lives. We've talked about this before where, you know, you're looking at a case in Kentucky that you pointed out yesterday saying that that people who are vaccinated can spread. And so maybe we shouldn't be listing, you know, lifting mask mandates, even if we're all vaccinated. I mean, there are a lot of questions here. I want to jump in here, please. This is Leila Tosti. So he's changing the metric because it's taking too long to lift the health orders? Is well, that no. He says it's confusing. It always was confusing. I mean, um, we have a story that explains how hard it is for people to follow this. It's not updated every day. You, it, it takes a confusing. It was a dumb metric. When he announced it, it was like, wait, we've been following all these numbers. What's that one? And it was like a made up number because I think he thought it was going to drop. So giving people something they can follow every day. We get angry emails from readers almost every day saying, when you put your numbers in in the paper and online every day, you should be putting in this metric because they just don't get that it doesn't update every day. You know, if he comes up with vaccinations, that's something we could update more regularly. And it's it's a more tangible number. I just he's going to have to set it low because it seems like we won't get to 60 percent. Well, what I'm what I'm hearing is that by changing the metric to the number of vaccinations, it kind of makes us as citizens more directly responsible for the metric. And I'm wondering if that's a strategy to incentivize people to get the vaccine by using the easing of restrictions as the carrot. You know, <laughs> I mean, that's I mean, a good that's, point. That's Leela. exactly I what thought I thought when I when I but, that is that is actually what I thought he was trying to do. Like, well, all right. When you guys, too much strategy. Wait, 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 wait. All right. So here I am. A dead set against getting the vaccine. And because if you I believe want to, if it's you a want plot. to live your wait, life wait, wait, the way you did before, you got to go you, get the shot. Do you really think that if I'm of that mindset, I give a damn about the mask order? I mean, I'm not wearing a mask already if I'm that of that mindset. If that's the strategy, the people that it's aimed at, do you really see them changing their minds? Well, We've got legislators that won't wear masks in the chamber that wanted to have Mike DeWine arrested because they didn't like his orders. I'm not sure that that kind of strategy is going to work with people who well, are Well, then if that strategy is a failure, I mean, then the whole, it, 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 then this turns into the, the littering thing from yesterday. This is just putting the responsibility <laughs> on people. I mean, I honestly think he could set a vaccination rate that we're never going to get to. And eventually he's just going to throw up his hands and be like, fine, just fine. And, you know, like literally, how does he get out of this mess now that he said it? All right. I want to get to one more for fairness. So let's move on. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Did Ohio Governor Mike DeWine distribute coronavirus vaccines in the state using the strategies he announced, or did he send more to places where he has stronger political support? Jane Cahoon, this became a significant question about a month ago when rural areas had a surplus and urban areas had a shortage. He kept saying, look, I followed a formula. We decided to check to, to, to get the facts and see what they show one way or the other. It's watchdog reporting. What did we find out? 
Well, Rich Exner and Seth Richardson examined this data, and we found out that, no, DeWine played it pretty straight here. He didn't play games with the allocation of vaccines. We know about all these logistical problems, and and as you said, the problems with the you know urban er- areas seeming to have difficulty where the rural areas had extra. And so that did cause us to to question this. But they looked at the first two months of the widespread distribution of the vaccine, and they really found no indication that he played favorites with the counties that supported him in his uh, last election. You know, we saw things like that happen elsewhere in Florida where there was where there was favoritism. But they they reviewed the records for the distribution of just over 1.7 million first dose vaccines. And that was from mid-January through mid-March. And those didn't include other doses that they gave to the school workers and at these mass vaccination centers like the like the Wolstein here in Cleveland. And then they compare that to as I said, the results of his last election. And they found that like 47.3% of the doses were sent to the nine Ohio counties that DeWine lost in the 2018 election, counties that account for just 41.7% of Ohio's 65 and older population and 44.1% of those 16 and up, which is now the minimum age to receive vaccines. So more doses did go to the 79 counties, DeWine won, but these counties account for like 58.3% of Ohio's population, 65 and up, and 55.9% of the 16 and up. You're you're getting deep in the weeds. I mean, the upshot is he claimed that he did this based on a strategy to get it to the people who needed it most. We questioned that. We did the watchdog reporting that is our job. And he was telling the truth. He did the right thing. He yeah. he targeted the vaccines in a smart way to reduce the spread of the virus. And we're reporting that because we owe it to him because we raised those questions. So it's Don't good you stuff. feel bad now, Chris? No, not at all. <laughs> we, he did his job. We did our we job. Did and, and for once, the system worked. How about that? Too bad he couldn't have applied the same strategies to serving the unemployment crowd. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. All right. This has been a fiery discussion. It's not bad. Good, good, good way to close out the week. We'll have plenty to talk about Monday, too, with the stories that we'll be rolling out over the next three days. Have a good weekend, Laura, Layla, Jane. Thank you to everybody who listens to this podcast. Come on back Monday for another hot discussion of the latest news. <laughs>